Hello, welcome back to another episode of Documentary Factor Fiction, the latest series we're presenting as part of Deepak Casts, our podcast series that we present here at the DeBartolo Performing Arts Center at the University of Notre Dame. My name's Ted Barron. I'm the executive director of the DeBartolo Center, and I also teach a class on documentary that, that explores questions about documentary representation, the limits of the form, and all sorts of fun issues. Um, so this week, we're going to be looking at a film uh, titled Far From Poland, which is by director Jill Godmalow. Uh, it's a film that uh, we maybe can characterize as, uh, characterize as kind of a hybrid form of documentary, or perhaps, as Jill might prefer to call it, uh, post-realist cinema. Uh, and we'll kind of see what that means. Now, note, I am going to be referring to this week's director at, by her first name uh, because she is someone uh, who I know personally, and I feel comfortable addressing her on a first name basis. I hope she doesn't mind should she should she choose to listen to this podcast. Uh, but Jill's done uh, some amazing work in in uh, nonfiction film as well as uh, in writing about film. Um, in 2001, she published an essay titled Kill the Documentary as We Know It. Um, and in this piece, she critiques, uh, she critiques documentary filmmakers and in particular a tendency toward what she describes as the pornography of the real. And I'm going to just read a little bit from her, um, from her essay just to give you a sense of both her position in relation to documentary film and what she sees as you know, the particular challenges of uh, some of the more established forms. So she talks about the pornography of the real as the objectifying of a graphic image, turning it from a subject into an object so that the thing or person depicted can be commodified, circulated, and consumed with regard to its status as a subject. The documentary's exploitation of real-life situations to produce that titillation of difference which middle-class audiences seem to need and enjoy. This pornographic exploitation of the real offers viewers an unspeakable and unspoken message that encourages them to unconsciously accept in the movie theater, in the dark, when no one is watching, the secret sentiment best characterized by the phrase, thank God it's not me while also encouraging them to peek at the devastated, the distorted, the dispossessed, and the daringly, dramatically different. So this kind of lays out um, in very much a manifesto form, as she, as she describes it, uh, Jill's ideas about you know, what, what challenges have emerged as certain forms of documentary have become kind of standardized um, and embraced by, uh, by wider audiences. Um, so a little bit of background on Jill. Uh, one of the reasons why I know her is that when I first arrived at Notre Dame in 2010, Jill served as a professor in the Department of Film, uh, Television, and Theater, uh, teaching primarily documentary production classes, but also other classes in filmmaking and some amazing classes in film studies. Uh, she was a particular fan of Iranian cinema, uh, which will uh, come up later in our series uh, this semester, uh, but just a real kind of uh, consumer of all kinds of film and very passionate about pushing students to really find kind of a true, unique voice through the filmmaking process. 
Uh, one of her early successes as a filmmaker was a collaboration with folk singer Judy Collins on the film Antonia, A Portrait of the Woman, which received an Academy Award nomination for Best Documentary Film. She continued to make documentaries throughout the 1970s, although I should caution myself uh, in using that term documentary because it's a term that Jill herself is very uneasy with. She usually leans more toward nonfiction uh, rather than documentary when discussing this particular body of work. Um, in the 1990s, she directed a film version of Ron Vodder's acclaimed one-man show, Roy Cohn, Jack Smith, uh, which kind of links together the very different stories of uh, political figure Roy Cohn uh, and famous lawyer for uh, Joseph McCarthy uh, with experimental uh, uh, filmmaker Jack Smith and ties them together in just a really fascinating performance. In the wake of this success, she became fascinated with the work of German director Harun Faroqi. His work became a big influence on her later career, and she brilliantly reimagines his, his film in, in Unextinguishable Fire in her own film, What Faroqi Taught, which essentially tries to recreate the film shot by shot. Um, but instead of um, kind of addressing the period in which the film is shot, she made this in, in which was very much about uh, the sort of anti-war response to uh, the use of napalm in Vietnam in the 1960s. Jill recontextualizes that uh, through a lens of uh, 1990, her position in the Midwest in the 1990s. Um, recently, she um, she's continued to make films and is still active as a filmmaker, although retired as a uh, sadly retired as a as a faculty member at Notre Dame. Uh, but she actually recently expanded on her uh, earlier essay, "Kill the Documentary as We Know It," into a book length publication now titled "Kill the Documentary: A Letter to Filmmakers, Students, and Scholars," which includes many provocations uh, among among my among my favorites in her book are her list of is her list of 144 feature films to see before you croak that's the chapter title that's not my um, interpretation of it so the film that we're going to talk about is a film she made in 1984 titled far from poland at the time she was in a relationship with video artist mark mcgill who serves as a producer for the film and also appears uh in the film, part of uh, part of the context of the film is that we see um, kind of the domestic space that sh that Mark and Jill inhabit, um, and kind of use that and uses that as a point of entry into this uh, discussion of uh, th this particular topic, which was the Polish uh, Solidarity Movement. My colleague Ricky Herbst, who oversees our cinema program uh, here at the Browning Cinema, uh, noted that several of the films that we've been talking about over the course of this series, we could characterize as kind of forms of experiment. Um, and Ricky links this to, uh, has linked this to um, psychology experiments in the 1960s. Think about the Milgram experiments um, and others. Um, but seeing kind of the films uh, in many, particularly the films that serve as kind of forms of provocation as kind of forms of experiment. And in, in this case, um, we could argue that this is another kind of experiment. We're not in the 1960s. We've moved, you know, uh, chronologically forward to 1984. 
Um, but the film comes about uh, from Jill's experiences when she was shooting a film in 1980 about theater director Jerzy uh, Grotowski. Uh, during that time, uh, as, as is well documented, strikes broke out in the shipyards in, in Poland, which would prove to be uh, a major catalyst for the emergence of the Solidarity Movement in the early 1980s. So she wanted to get a film crew together and film what was going on when the Polish government, uh, but, but, um, but was unable to do so because when she applied for visas with the Polish government, her visas were denied. So she had to figure out um, other plans. This is a description which is actually, um, which was used to promote the film, uh, which kind of lays out what the project um, set out to do. A filmmaker, a woman steeped in the documentary traditions of the left, sets out to dismantle the sinister symmetry of the Cold War single-handedly and show the world the road to salvation through the miracle of the Polish Solidarity Movement. When denied visas to shoot in Poland proper, she constructs a film in New York City called Far From Poland. Over the barest bones of documentary footage, she drapes reenactments of solidarity texts, formal vignettes, and swatches of soap opera to engage the audience in her personal, complex, contrary, and contradictory understanding of the Polish struggle. Bursting with imagination and intelligence, superb performances, and something much closer to the truth, Godmalow sheds the mandatory pornography of the real and delivers solidarity in full blood with humor without crocodile tears. So one of the challenges in making this film, and Jill acknowledged this in her own kind of reflections on the piece, is that it's, it's a film that's really hard to classify. While we've been looking at examples of documentary film where we see challenges to conventions of documentary, the, the earlier examples still seem to be you know, pretty clearly rooted in, uh, in nonfiction filmmaking traditions. For this film, Jill kind of opened herself up to a whole, um, you know, a whole new set of processes, and in the in, in in that process, kind of combined some very disparate elements, which can make for a very, for at times perhaps a very confusing experience of trying to understand the direction of the film, you know, what the source materials are. But this is by design as a as as partly as a challenge to the way in which um, documentary f uh, styles had been accepted up until that point. If we try to historicize the film, it's very much in dialogue uh, with the emergence of feminist film and video art uh, beginning in the 1960s, but really taking hold in the 1970s. If we think about work by artists such as Yvonne Rayner, um, Carolee Schneeman, uh, Martha Rossler, who's a particular favorite of Jill's. Um, this is her films tend to be kind of in that same or speaking in a similar voice, even though they might be addressing um, different issues um, and notable because partly that we're looking at a work, you know, work directed uh, by women or by a woman um, and how those voices tend to be marginalized within the more dominant um, examples of documentary film. Um, this also fits uh, kind of nicely within kind of emergences of, of 1980s um, American independent film. This is a period in which um, PBS 
um, had had uh, production uh, or production funding available through the American Playhouse brand. And if you look and if you look at the films and um, other pieces that were produced. Um, through those avenues, um, unlike kind of historical examples of American independent cinema, where there is kind of more of an emphasis on realism, these works tend to have more of a Brechtian quality to them. Um, this you know kind of awareness of process. Um, if you think about if when you look at some of the um, performance elements that we see within Jill's work, there's uh, a, a kind of intentionally stagey quality for them, for lack of a better word. Um, really trying to you know, avoid that naturalism, uh, which which I think Godmelo sees Jill sees as very problematic um, because of what it might suggest and what kinds of values it might uh, reinforce. So the film opens with Jill essentially offering a direct address to us, the viewer, uh, where she kind of explains the project. She gives the she gives kind of that version of the story where she was denied. Uh, visas to go to Poland, so she had to come up with a with a new way of telling this story that she felt had to be told. So from that opening, um, we transition into scenes of her domestic life, her life at home uh, with Mark McGill, who was her her, her boyfriend at the time, uh, but also her collaborator in the way that um, he served as a producer on the work, but also in his appearances in the film. And she describes this as kind of her version of soap opera, um, kind of emphasizing the more melodramatic elements of the relationship. I don't think it quite translates into what we might think of as um, a more contemporary soap opera, but there is uh, kind of an element of artifice to the way the two play off of one another. And I think they're really, they're really wonderful and fascinating to watch in those scenes. But in those scenes, we see within their apartment, uh, Jill uh, hunkered down over um, a Steenbeck, an editing table, as she's watching video footage uh, continuously. And most of this video footage is, uh, are various documents of the solidarity movement. And we can see that this is kind of an obsession for her, which she is actually getting, um, she's getting needled about by McGill, who, you know, wants to sort of, uh, or we're not sure what his intent is, but he seems to be kind of challenging um, her obsession with this material. So in terms of what we have for documentation of that movement, um, we see news coverage from American television. She incorporates some interview footage with Polish exiles who would be living in the U.S. Again, you know, she's constrained to making the film um, in, in the U.S., so she's not able to you know, travel to Poland to interview subjects as she originally hoped to do. Um, and then there's also an incorporation of footage which was, which was actually smuggled out of the country, th- uh, scenes that were filmed kind of clandestinely, not by uh, Jill herself, but uh, by others, uh, which you know, sort of helps to give context for the, for the overall film experience. Um, arguably, the centerpiece of the film is are a series of reenactments in which we see um, American actors uh, playing the roles of notable figures within this movement. So the actor Ruth Malachak uh, plays the role of Anna Walent- Walentinowicz, um, who was the um, crane operator um, who was who was fired in the shipyards, uh, which ultimately brought about the first um, strike in in Gdansk. Um, we see Mark uh, Margulis, uh, who's probably better known to contemporary audiences 
uh, for his role as Hector Salamanca in Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. Uh, he plays a Polish miner um, who is interviewed about his experiences. And then Bill Raymond, who was a regular in the films of John Sayles, also a contemporary of Jill's in, in the 1980s kind of independent film scene, uh, but maybe best known for his, uh, to wider audiences for his uh, role on the TV show The Wire. Um, he plays the mysterious K-62, uh, who is a former government censor. Um, in the scenes with K-62, uh, when he's first introduced, uh, we hear, a, na- we hear a, a voiceover narration, which explains that we are watching an interview that's being conducted by a journalist, which was originally published in the Solidarity newspaper. And in that scene, the narrator also identifies uh, Raymond uh, as the actor playing the role of K-62, as well as the actress who plays the journalist. So there's, there's a kind of constant um, kind of awareness of the film as it's being constructed. Uh, but one of the things that she does, which was a more controversial aspect of the work, as, as Jill describes it, was to incorporate a laugh track into certain scenes of the interview. And part of this was, again, to have that kind of Brechtian quality to, to shake uh, complacency out of the viewer. Because um, even though what K-62 is revealing in his, in his interview is, is quite provocative, um, she didn't want uh, she didn't want that device of an interview to just sort of go um, unchecked, and so we get these you know, we get these elements that kind of shake us up a bit. Um, and she notes that that had a very polarizing response when she when she made the film. Some people loved it. Some people found it to be you know one of the one of the fundamental issues with the film of just not really settling into a particular style of film. Um, so the the film proceeds where we get you know more and more background on uh, on this particular subject of the solidarity movement from you know from some different perspectives, and then she includes this really remarkable epilogue, which includes um, scenes from a film by um, uh, or outtakes from a film by Andrei Vida, who's a noted Polish director, uh, and those scenes are reimagined with audio that that Jill constructs of letters that are being read to uh, the former uh, uh, the former leader in, in Poland. Um, and then we come back to Jill, who kind of who kind of sums up, gives a, a sort of summary of the project. But of course, it's incomplete. It's uncertain and it very much open ended in terms of in terms of the experience. So um, in terms of the way that that shapes the overall experience of the film, um, and how we perceive kind of the elements of fact or fiction, I would say, you know, for Jill, no work of nonfiction is without its problems, particularly um, particularly works that embrace more realist techniques. Um, and, and in part because realism has been used so extensively to, to make claims of truth within cinema and also to assert a greater claim of truth than other forms. Um, this is partly why she, she uses this term post-realist to describe the works that she's making and, fil- and other films that she thinks are significant in the way that they try to break through these conventions and find a new language of nonfiction, which perhaps can be alienating, but ultimately, to borrow another term from Jill, um, it serves to be useful. So that's our um, kind of uh, preview or, or recap of uh, what's coming up with uh, Far From Poland. Uh, we'll continue our exploration of documentary film. Sorry, Jill, I did use that term uh, as, we, as we work through the course over the next, uh, over the next few weeks.